Friends, good to see you all. Bring you greetings from Chevrolet Baptist Church, Chevrolet, Maryland, which is just outside of the district on the Maryland side, and it's great to be with you. PJ, I think that's the first time I've ever been introduced as a bishop. <laughs> that, was, that was special. I appreciate you reclaiming biblical language, though, right? Amen? You guys follow him on Twitter. He talks about Saint Tobian, and he refers to others as Saint, kind of reclaiming that one. I've noticed that's a pattern of yours. Uh, after after the, the, the good singing, I feel like I should get up here and preach. I'm not going to preach. I'm going to give a talk. Is that all right? I'm just going to give a talk. And the talk I'm going to give is on how the gospel displays, I'm sorry, the church displays the gospel. That's what we're going to be thinking about. I was, uh, I was in, I was in a, a, a church a couple weeks ago, and, and somebody said to me, he was, he was interviewing me, he said, yeah, you guys at Nine Marks, you're like really into the church. And I was like, we're really into Christianity. And Christianity looks like the church. Right? Amen? Okay, so that, that's... That's in some sense what we're going to be thinking about in this first session together. And then, Bobby, maybe you can give more of a exhort our hearts sermon that we all want to be edified by. Okay? We, we as evangelicals aren't quick to talk about the church. We're quick to talk about the gospel. We're quick to talk about conversion, right? And in some ways, this is thick in our DNA as evangelicals. Go back to the revivals of George Whitfield. You guys have heard of him, 18th century revivalist preacher. He, he would go throughout Britain and then, and then the United States, and he would, he would preach, and people would get saved. The thing is, he was an Anglican, and his own Anglican ministers weren't so excited about what he was preaching they would shut him out of their churches, and so he'd go to the Presbyterian and the Baptist churches or out to the fields if, if occasion required, and people would get saved. What's, what's the lesson, what's the moral of that? Well, the, the lesson, the moral of that is, eh, your church things, your church differences don't really make a difference, do they? I mean, as long as people are getting saved, isn't that what counts? Now, what makes you a Baptist? What makes you a Presbyterian? What makes you an Anglican? Uh, we take the same lesson as evangelicals from the Billy Graham rallies in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. After all, he would, people would come forward by the hundreds and sometimes thousands, and he would cooperate with other local churches in whatever area he was at, and he would get the Methodist pastors and Methodist members and the Lutheran and the Presbyterian and the Baptist and the non-denoms, and they, they would all come and help out. And again, what's the takeaway lesson from that? Well, these things that kind of make churches churches don't really matter so long as people are coming forward, getting saved. So frankly, if I can just watch Billy Graham on TV, well, isn't that enough? I can get saved that way, right? Got the thief on the cross. He never joined a church. Today you'll be with me in paradise. So there's a number of things in our evangelical DNA, our gospel, by that I just mean our gospel-believing DNA, that tends to downplay the significance of the local church. And those things that make us churches, baptism, 
Supper, ordination. Can women be ordained? These are the things we just squabble and fight about. So are they really that important after all? Uh, to borrow uh, from, from Mark Dever, he often talks about, as evangelicals, we tend to have two speeds. Speed one, essential for salvation. Speed two, everything else that's unimportant. Who cares, right? And, and the question is worth asking is, is it possible in between these two speeds, essential for salvation and unimportant, there's actually a middle speed. Maybe not essential for salvation, but what about essential for obedience? Essential for witness? Essential for preserving the gospel over time? And as we talk about the church, in many ways, we're right there in that, that middle lane. And it's these, this middle lane, essential for obedience, essential for witness, essential for preserving the gospel, that in fact puts on then display the gospel, that which is necessary for salvation. There's two basic points I want to make in this first talk. Point one, the gospel creates churches. The gospel creates churches. And notice I didn't say the gospel creates the church, big capital C, right? That's true. I'm, I'm, I'm making a, a more specific claim here. It creates a church or creates churches. It creates the local church. That is to say, it creates organized, covenanted together, life on life, a list of names with these people that I'm following Jesus together with. That's what the gospel creates. What's the gospel? Well, the gospel is the good news that God created us perfect, good, because he's a perfect and good God. But of course we rebelled. We decided to do it our way instead of his way, earning his just wrath. The good news is that Jesus came to live the life that we should have lived, died the death that we deserve to die, taking the wrath of God on himself as a punishment for sin, and then rose from the grave so that all who repent of their sin, put their trust in Christ, and follow after him are made a new people, his people, beginning today and extending into eternity. Okay, that's, in a nutshell, that's the gospel. I'm saying that gospel creates churches. In fact, to whiteboard this, I hope you can see this on. Hear me now? Hear me now? Hear me now? There we go. I, I find it helpful to just flow chart this. I hope you guys can see in the back. I'll do all caps. All right. Gospel. Can you see that? You can imagine it, right? says gospel, 
It creates churches. That, that, that's an arrow if you can't tell all the way back there. Creates churches. All right? That's beautiful, isn't it? All right. Very often when we're talking about joining a church, we'll say something like, look, hey, it's good for you to join a church because it's, it's good for you. It'll help you grow in faith. Uh, you'll be edified. You'll meet other Christians. You'll have good fellowships. will help you to f- follow Jesus together. And that's all true. Those are good practical reasons, pragmatic reasons, you might say, why to join a church. I don't want to downplay that, but I'm, I'm saying something stronger here, which is it actually creates a church. The gospel creates a church. You join a church, not because it's good for you fundamentally. You join a church because that's what you are. You're a family member. You're a sheep in the flock. You're a brick in the temple, right? You are a part of the body of Christ. Now, I want to unpack this first point. The gospel creates churches in two subpoints here, okay? Here's the first subpoint. First, the gospel makes us a member of the church. All right, subpoint number one the gospel makes us a member of the capital C universal church. Turn, if you have a Bible, to Second or 1 Peter 2.10. 1 Peter 2.10. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Typically, when we think about the gospel as evangelicals or as as Christians, we think of that second line, right? I, I didn't have mercy. Now let me tell you my testimony. Uh, all this bad stuff was happening in my life, and then, and then a friend came or a parent came, and they shared the gospel with me, and I repented of my sins, and I put my trust in Christ, and I received forgiveness. I received mercy. And that's, that's the testimony we share, right? So, something like that. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. But notice what Peter places in parallel with that line, right right above it. Once you were not a people, now you are a people. In other words, what happens, Peter is saying, simultaneously not mercy to mercy is not a people, a people. You see? In other words... Conversion, brothers and sisters, is personal, yes, individual, yes, but also corporate. Conversion is corporate. You are saved into a people. Isn't that amazing? Conversion comes with a family photograph, and you get placed in the family photograph. And as you're talking about conversion with your members of your church, this needs to be a part of how you talk about conversion. This needs to be a part of how we share our testimonies. 
So not just I was out sinning and then somebody shared the gospel with me and I repented and I put my trust in Christ and I followed after. Okay, that's part of it. But there's this other element. I, I used to hate being around Christians. They were embarrassing. I, I grew up in a Christian home and uh, I remember I went off to college, went to a secular college, and I knew because my parents wanted me to, I'd go to this Christian fellowship on campus and they were just, they were embarrassing to me, a bunch of nerds. You know, I didn't, I didn't want to be around those people. But then later in life, when I, when I moved to Washington, D.C., and I, I, was, I was working there, and, and I started attending this one particular church, and, and things started to happen in, in my, my life. Desire started to change. Suddenly, I, I was interested in reading this book, and I had all my non-Christian friends there in college, but you know what? The, 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 this older couple in this church, Helen and Hardin Young, this sweet older couple, they, they'd invite me over to their house for, for dinner, and I just I loved talking to them, and getting to know them, and this older man named Dan, he, uh, he said, hey, Jonathan, you want to meet on Saturdays, and we'll read through the book of Isaiah together, and a number of people in the church just started drawing me in, and I found myself in the, in the context of this beautiful fellowship, and I went from, like, being embarrassed to being around Christians to, like, loving these people, and wanting to be around these people, and even serve these people. I remember I was, I was working as a journalist at that point, and uh, supposed to be, like, you know, you know, doing something for work, and I'd be thinking about the guys in my Bible study. I'd be sending them emails. Hey, what's going on? Hey, you, you know, you've been praying for you. And I got down that path a little while, and looking back, and I realized my heart had developed these new affections, and I, th- I think that was part of my conversion, was, was going from putting off sin to seeking to put on righteousness, yes, but also don't like these people. I'm a loner. I'm a rebel to, like, Oh, I love these people. Do you see how that's part of my testimony? Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Once you were not a people, now you are a people. Okay, this, this, this is, that's, that's, that's 1 Peter 2.10. Let me give you another text. Uh, turn to Ephesians 2. We, we see the same thing there. Ephesians 2. There's, there's two critical buts in this passage. What are the two critical B-U-T's? First one verse, anybody? Verse 4. Yeah. But God, being rich in mercy, and then skipping up, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you've been saved, raised up with him, seated with him in the heavenly places. Okay, this, this first but God points to what kind of reconciliation spatially? Spatially, what kind of a vertical? You are raised up, right? It's vertical. Raised up, seated with him in the heavenlies. Okay, that's the first critical but reconciled to God. What's what's what verse gives us the second one? Thirteen. Yeah, that's right. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What, what Spatially, what kind of reconciliation is that? Horizontal. When did the horizontal, look, just looking at the text, when did the horizontal reconciliation occur? Not a rhetorical question. After the vertical, yes, that's true, but when specifically did it happen? Well, 
it happened to me at conversion, but when did, it, when did God accomplish it? By the blood of Christ, which is to say at the, at the cross, right? And, and notice, notice it's all past tense. You were who were far off have been brought near. He himself has made us both one. He, not making us, not will make us, made us both one. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Okay, now in, in context, of course, it's, des- it's describing the separation between Jew and Gentile, but by extension, we can say all those who trust in Christ. So the, the, the vertical is primary, and so there's a second which, and yes, it brings then with it secondarily, but necessarily the horizontal. And when did it all occur? It all occurred at the cross. Then applied to me, yes, in my own conversion at that moment. But, but, but it happened at the cross. So, so the vertical is primary. The horizontal is secondary. But the horizontal is necessarily and inescapably connected to the vertical. You guys with me? Right? Again, conversion is corporate. Made us both one. Has broken down. So, so mom and dad go down to the orphanage. They, they adopt me. They, they bring me home. I walk into the house. I look around the room. What do I see? Siblings, brothers and sisters. Now, I'm made brothers and sisters with them by virtue of mom and dad adopting me. But that adoption necessarily brings these new horizontal relationships I have with brothers and sisters. So the gospel creates us not just as individual Christians. It creates a community, a body, a family. Photograph, the gospel is church-shaped. The gospel is church-shaped. That was my first sub-point. The gospel makes us a member of the church. Here's my second sub-point to point one. Second, the gospel demands that we join a church. The gospel demands that we join a church. So my first sub-point was makes, right? And my second point is demands. Now those of you who know your Pauline theology know we're moving from the indicative over here Right? The indicative to the what? Imperative. So the gospel makes us a member of the church and then it demands we join churches is how that works. So joining a church is how we put on, put into practice, make visible our membership in the universal church. We live out our membership in the universal in the local church. And in that sense, the the relationship between the church, that's a capital C church, and local churches Sorry, you probably can't see that. It just says local churches down there. Is the same 
as the relationship between, I'm going to keep making this messier and messier here, between our, back to our Pauline theology, our positional, positional righteousness, our positional righteousness and our progressive righteousness in Christ. Okay, so at the, at, the, at, the, at the cross, we were declared righteous, right? We were declared in the throne room of heaven righteous. But then we put on that righteousness. We live it out. We put it into practice you know, in, in day-to-day life, right? So the, the relationship between the gospel and the church, between the universal church and the local church, is that same relationship. Your, your positional righteousness should create you living a righteous life. The fact that you've been declared a member of the church means you should be putting into practice and joining a church. It's, it's the same relation. Here's another one. Faith deeds. You, you, you have faith? Let, let, let me show it by my deeds, James talks about. Right? Your faith should be creating deeds. Oh, you're a part of the church everywhere? Really? You, t- you tell me you love all Christians everywhere so you don't need to join a church? Really? Because if you're actually a part of the church, you will be joining a church. The gospel creates churches. The indicative creates the imperative. Faith creates deeds. Positional righteousness creates progressive righteousness okay in the same way don't don't tell me you're a member of the family if you're never at the family dinner table it's like I'm not sure I believe you don't tell me you're a, a brick in the temple if, if, if you're never together with the temple in other words the gospel doesn't create a mere vague, universal brotherhood that gives me warm feelings towards all Christians everywhere. Rather, it creates a concrete, covenanted together, geographically located, accountability-providing list of actual names. There's Brother Bob. There's Sister Sue. There's Deacon Darnell. Down at Bumble Stew Baptist. Right? That, that's what the gospel creates. Um, which is to say, brother pastors, good ecclesiology is not just an academic enterprise for folks who want to cross their theological T's and dot their ecclesiological I's. Rather, good ecclesiology is the outworking of the gospel. It's the the shape the gospel begins to take in my life and in my steps. And my affections, and my commitments, and my accountability, and what I'm doing on Friday night. The gospel creates this this relationship I have with other people and a set of obligations with them. Did did you see? So it's not just, oh, I repented, so I'm fighting porn. I'm trying to clean up my mouth, like these individual things. No, it's like, I repented, and now i got to hang out with these people. I gotta love them. 
And it's not easy because they're hard to love. And I'm hard to love. But it's, it's the gospel in my life that's creating these kinds of relationships with other people. Of course, the trouble is too many of us have decided the Bible just doesn't address how to build, grow, lead, live as local churches. And that's one reason we all become pragmatists. We supplant God's wisdom with our own. And that's when things start to fall apart. That's when accountability breaks down, as does discipline. That's when authority and leadership begin to take ungodly sizes and shapes. That's when men demand what they shouldn't. And women respond in kind. That's what happens when we redefine sin and we make our peace treaties with it. That's when love becomes whatever the culture tells us it is, not what Jesus says it is, and on and on I can go. No, the gospel comes in and makes very specific demands on our relationships with each other, and that's, that's ecclesiology. That's, that's church polity. So when the whole Me Too movement happened in 2018, I just remember thinking to myself, because by God's grace, I've been a part of healthy churches with healthy membership in in which we practice church discipline. I remember thinking, okay, it's about time you all got here. Like, yeah, men shouldn't live like that. And they should be corrected when they do. Like, why is this, are we really all just figuring this out now? You know? Because an understanding of the gospel creates an understanding of the church, which creates an understanding of how I should live with my wife and how I should live with other women. And if I don't, other Christian brothers and sisters should call me to account for that. And if, and if I continue to live in that way, yeah, stop calling yourself a Christian, Jonathan. See, all this stuff is built in for us if, 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 if we are Christians. Okay, so... Point one, Roman numeral, big point one, the gospel creates churches. Not just the capital C, but small c churches. It gives us a new identity. I'm a son of the king. I'm a brother and sister with others. And it comes with new demands. And we, we become what we are by joining a church. We become what we are by joining a church. You're no longer an I, you're a we, you're an us. What must we do to be saved? They said to Peter in Acts chapter 2, he said, repent and be baptized. And about 3,000 were baptized that day and added to their number. What number? Well, the, 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 the church in Jerusalem. A bunch of I's became a we, the people of God on earth, right? Became the church in Jerusalem. Here's big point number two. The church, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flow chart this back. Churches protect, display, and provide, and this is a long one, provide an apologetic for, apologetic for an argument for, a defense for, provide, and this is just too messy up here. Let's clean up some. Provide an apologetic for the gospel. 
okay? So the gospel creates churches. Churches, in turn, protect, display, provide an apologetic for the gospel. And like literally the rest of my talk now is just going to be beating that horse over and over, okay? It's, it's, it's just really simple. This, this, this is all I'm trying to accomplish this evening. Notice, notice we have a virtuous cycle, virtuous circle there. People can become Christians apart from, they can live as Christians apart from the gospel, but man, they're going to have difficulty protecting it in their own life, in the life of others, protecting that gospel. They're going to have a difficulty displaying it. They're going to have a difficulty making an argument for it. They are, at best, living on thin ice apart from a local church. Let's look at several passages briefly. Turn to first, uh, Galatians 1. Galatians 1, verse 6. Paul's writing the churches in Galatia, we know from verse 2. He says in verse 6, I'm astonished you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As I've said, we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And notice right, right here, what is he doing? He's telling these members these Galatia, of the Galatian churches to remove teachers who bring a different gospel. He's not writing the pastors. He's not writing the bishops or the overseers or the elders. He's writing the churches, churches of Galatia. I, I, don't, I don't care if a guy shows up and says, yo, check it out. I got an apostle's card right here. I'm an apostle. Paul's like, doesn't matter. I don't care if a guy flies down on wings from heaven. If he brings you a different gospel, churches of Galatia, let him be accursed. No. Why? What's, what's the job of the Galatian churches? What's their job? It's right here. Protect. They are to protect that gospel. Right? Not just the ordained ones who show up on conferences on Thursday night. The guys who go to seminaries. No, the churches. Your job is to protect that gospel. So are you being equipped? And brothers, are, are you equipping the members of your churches with that gospel so they can in turn protect it? Because that's your, your job is to equip them to do their job, which is to protect that gospel. So if I asked every member of your church, what's the gospel? Would they be able to give me a good answer? If I asked, what, what's the relationship with, between faith and deeds? If I said... If I said to members of your church, okay, guy's living with his girlfriend, he calls himself a Christian, what do you think? Would they explain, be able to explain to me why that's problematic? If I said to the members of your church, why is it crucial that a church never lets its identity be undermined by attachment to a particular political party? Would they be able to say, yeah, we, we don't ever want to do that. 
would they be able to explain why? Because if, if, if their job is to guard the gospel, protect the gospel, according to Galatians 1, they need to be able to answer those kinds of questions, right? And are you, brother pastors, equipping them to do that kind of work? So that if you or I start to do this, or our fellow elders, they know how to act. Churches should protect the gospel. They build a house for it. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians, I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. PJ, I'm going to go a little long. We'll see, we'll see how long. I'm not sure yet. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, he says to the church in Thessalonica, constantly mention you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Okay, they, they'd received the word of the gospel, that's clear. Those words we read came with, the, with power and with the spirit, it says. How, how does Paul know that? Well, he knows it by how they live. Keep, keep reading. Verse 5. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of, of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Notice they were an example. They were an example to other believers. And then that gospel word, and that gospel example, worked to do what? Display the gospel around their region, even across national borders. Look at verse 8. For not only is the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. Here's the gospel again. Whom he raised from the dead who delivers us from the wrath to come. The life of the Thessalonians did what? What did it do? Thank you. There we go. Displayed the gospel. They became an example to others and Macedonia and Achaia and around the region so that Paul's like, yeah, I got nothing else to do here. The way you're speaking and living is displaying this gospel. Of course, turn back to John 13. Jesus had predicted all of this, right? John 13. You remember what he said about our love for one another inside of the churches? A new commandment I give to you, verse 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Of course, he could have said by your love for them they would know you're my disciples. That's not what he says. He says by your love for one another they will know that you are my disciples. Let's, let's think about how, how does that work? How is it that they're, they're to love each other as he loved them and their love for each other which showed the world that they were his disciples? How, what's, what's the logical flow there? How does that 
work. Well, what is Christ's love for us like? And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation or an atoning sacrifice for us. Okay, so his love is given to you and me while we were yet sinners, right? So we came to him not beautiful but ugly, and he loved us there. Okay, so how he loved us forgivingly, mercifully, passoveringly. How should we love one another? Forgivingly, mercifully, passoveringly. You, you said you were going to show up for nursery on time. You didn't. You're never here on time, and I, I'm having to fill in for you. Can, can I love that person? I, I don't like the way you spoke to me behind what I heard you said about me to those people. That, that really, that feels like slander and gossip. Can I love you right there? Okay, it's as we love each other like that, as we step on one another's toes and as we offend one another and as we sin against, but still love, that shows that we've been loved and we recognize whom we've been loved by and then that shows what? The gospel, that we're his disciples. Again, where is Paul getting this from? He's getting it from Jesus because Jesus says when you love each other like that, like I loved you, that will display the gospel. Okay, so so the gospel builds a house. It's uh, an analogy Mark often uses, it's, it's like the gospel, if it's the diamond, it's, it's set in the, the gold or platinum band that puts that gospel on display. That's what the church is. The church is like that band that displays the gospel. Um, one more, 1 Peter four, 2. 1 Peter 2, verse 4, or verse 5, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Verse 9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Okay, so receiving this preached word makes them a a new spiritual house, a race, a priesthood, a nation. Then look down at verse 11, 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of vision, visitation. Okay, so our, our gospel changed lives, that is, should provoke non-Christians to oppose us. They won't like it when we say Jesus is Lord before whom they should bow. Uh, our good deeds, however, will frustrate them in that opposition because our good deeds will provide an opportunity an apologetic for, an argument for the gospel. I can't believe that these Christians across the street from my house say that me and my female partner, two lesbians across the street from my house, I can't believe these Christians say that being a lesbian is wrong. They're bigots. They're intolerant. 
But what frustrates me is it's it's these Christians who are always the first to shovel our sidewalk when it snows. They're the first to be over here with cookies. They're the they're so great. They're they're only they're the only family on this block that's ever invited us over for dinner. Why are they so nice? Why are they pursuing a relationship with us when when they tell us they think our lesbianism is wrong? Ah, drives me crazy. So they want to oppose us. But something in our deeds is making it hard to oppose us, right? It's, it's, like, it's like Christians are like the ointment and the fly in the ointment, both. I think that's the vision Peter is giving us here. So we are providing an apologetic for the gospel. So gospel creates churches. Churches in turn protect display, provide an apologetic for the gospel. This is the virtuous circle cycle I was telling you about. Let me give you a couple of illustrations of this. First, a negative illustration. A a guy who I was uh, trying to bring into our church. uh, He was coming to church membership class or he couldn't come to the church membership class so I would meet him for coffee and he would I would go through our church membership classes for we walked through the statement of faith he agreed with everything in the statement of faith church covenant agreed with everything in the church covenant um very sharp guy he, he was a journalist there in DC and um finally got to a point where we did a church membership interview and in the process of the church membership interview, it came out at the very end of the in- interview that he was in- in- engaging in a lifestyle of-, of sexual sin. And he wasn't sure if he wanted to give it up. He said he wanted to give it up, but he didn't want me to share that with the other elders. And uh, I said, well, listen, it's not like we need to share this with the whole church, but insofar as you're continuing to pursue this this activity of sin, I, I need to at least share it with one or two other elders to make sure I'm not doing this alone and, and, and their judgment is, is the same as mine, so can I, can I share this? And he's like, no, you can't. I said, well, I'm not, I'm not comfortable moving forward. And he said, okay, well, uh, what do we do? I said, well, why don't we just pause on this and, and, and you, I'm asking you to step into the light, not just with me, but at least with a couple of other elders, and until you're ready to do that, I'm not sure you're ready to be a member of the church. You know, I'm not talking about sharing all your dirty laundry with all the church. I'm just talking baby steps here. And he didn't want to do it. And so we kind of paused the membership process. I continued to check in with him a month, two months, three months. Time kept passing. And uh, he, he just kind of faded further and further back. And I would, I would reach out to him. We'd have coffee. We'd have a meal. Eventually, one day, he, he, he said, you know, Jonathan, I, I don't think I'm a, I'm a Christian after all. Or at least I'm not your kind of Christian. Now, this, this particular individual, I, I don't know if today, it's been a few years now, I don't know if he continues to profess that he's a follower of Christ or not. For a long time, he tried. But he couldn't quite ever join a church. Because it had a set of demands of living in the light with brothers and sisters, of linking arms with brothers and sisters, and he wasn't ready to do. And so the gospel remained unprotected, undisplayed, 
unargued for in his life. And so sure enough, eventually there was just a fading back into gospel-less-ness. I, I trust many of you guys know Christians who call them, people who call themselves Christians, but they're not a part of a church. They might be Christians. At best, they're ineffected, ineffective, unprotected Christians. At best. Probably often not. Their children do not follow them into the gospel. Their friends do not follow them into the gospel. At best, it lasts with them and doesn't travel any further. Let me give you a second illustration. My colleague and boss, Ryan Townsend. Uh, Ryan lived in Houston as a Unitarian in a Unitarian household. He would hang out with a lot of Christians there in Houston on Friday, Saturday night, getting drunk with them and partying with them. And then they'd go to church on Sunday and they'd say, hey, you should come to church with us. And he said, why, why would I do that? You're doing the same thing as me, but then you, you, you pretend like you're something you're not. At least I'm honest. But then Ryan moved to Washington, D.C., and he saw the church reach out to his mother and the way they loved her and took after, uh, looked after her after she went through a very a difficult situation with a, with a husband who was abandoning her. And he couldn't believe how they loved his mother and then invited him in too. And one day he decided, you know, you guys, you guys are a, a much better picture of the gospel than that, those people down in the former churches I was a part of. And eventually Ryan, too, repented and believed. And he did it as he watched the witness of the church. That was a church that protected the gospel and displayed the gospel and made an argument for the gospel. Uh, brothers and sisters, the most powerful argument, the most powerful pre-evangelism apologetic for the gospel, the thing that gives credibility to our message once it's spoken, will generally not be a scientific argument or a philosophical proof. How obsessed we often are with apologetics, right? And have been for the last 30, 40 years, if I could just make a good argument for the faith, and I'm nothing opposed to that. But for all the attention we give to that, where does the Bible place its emphasis? It places its emphasis on the life together of believers. So do you want to convince your non-Christian friends, that our views on sexuality are not bigoted and intolerant. Well, it's not just going to be the clever articles that we write that will convince them. It will be flourishing adolescents and singles and marrieds who stumble into this or that temptation but now find themselves meaningfully embraced by a new creation family. Do you want to convince them what, what the Bible says about male leadership in the home and the church is not oppressive? We can write books on that. We can write articles on that, sure. But more than that, what does it take to cultivate a culture of happy, flourishing women in our churches who are solid on doctrine, know how to follow it and live it? Do you want to undermine the claim that Christians don't care about justice? Well, then preach the word, all of it. 
and cultivate a culture of discipling and good deeds where congregations present a picture of justice and righteousness both within themselves and spilling outward. Salt must be distinct. Otherwise, you might as well throw it out to be trampled on by men. What do you do with the light? Do you put it under a bowl? Or do you want to hold it up for all to see it? We have the light. We are to be that salt. And that's how we protect, display, make an apologetic for the gospel that we believe. Let me pray. Father God, we give you praise for the church. We believe in Christianity, we believe in the gospel, therefore we believe in the church. And we believe that you have called us to live out as the church in our local churches. And we give you praise for each of our local churches. Help us to love, equip, lead, so that people might believe the gospel as we love one another, even as Jesus has loved us. In Christ's name, amen.